Hello and welcome to a podcast from A3 Management Consulting. This is a special uh, edition of our podcast series. It's going out under the Fueling the Transition banner, but in this podcast, we're looking in detail at the impact of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for uh, gas markets and energy markets in Europe and beyond. Of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to all those that are currently affected by, um, by this terrible situation. With me today, I have one of our uh, gas experts from within the Afrin Management Consulting team, Lucy Field. Lucy has been uh, working with, with AFRI for many years and is an expert in uh, European and global gas markets. So welcome, Lucy. Thank you for joining. Hello. Nice to be here. Not done this before, so uh, new to podcasting. I, I think just before we talk about uh, the the gas crisis currently, Lucy. Maybe you could um, tell us a little bit about your motivation, where you've you know w- where you've come from. What is your uh, what's really your drive for um, for working in the energy markets and uh, and and how you've ended up here? So my background is in engineering. Um, I'm quite geeky. I love analysis, and I was extremely happy when I joined A3 to be able to do solve problem solving and when you bring in a management consultant it's normally because the problem is a bit too tricky for companies or governments uh, to solve themselves so you're always getting interesting uh, challenging problems and I've been working gas markets which has the added element it's always been a very political fuel and the number of I've been working in this market for 25 years and there have been a number of events um, so with gas markets it's always interesting but it's not usually as tragic as the current events and just um, just in terms of the the you know the pressing nature of the current situation uh, the question on everyone's mind at the moment is can we survive without Russian gas in Europe and uh, and beyond you know obviously knock-on impacts so what's your just in in short what's your view could we survive without Russian gas it's very hard to imagine Europe without Russian gas it's an enormous part of our energy supply and it is used widely um, and we're reliant upon it so it is it's hard to imagine how we could transfer away from it you know if you give yourself long enough, um, then there are there are lots of options that we can try, but in a very short term, it's going to be a, a very big challenge, and it will test the European Union and how countries can support one another. When if something happens to the gas supplies, it would call upon a lot of cooperation and consideration for the countries that are going to be most affected. And we've seen um, the EU plan for reducing. Uh, reliance on Russian gas by two thirds, I think. Um, what's the time frame for that one? Well, they've suggested it's possible to do that in 12 months, which would be um, staggering, quite frankly. Um, we have to look out to the global gas market and there are options for bringing in more LNG. We have regasification capacity. We have about um, within Europe, I'm excluding Turkey because they've got some terminals, but within within the rest of Europe, there's about 200 BCM of regas capacity. And we use about half of it currently. And that can increase to probably 80%. So we have some regas capacity and there are some pipeline constraints around Europe. So you can't necessarily get user all effectively. 
But the biggest constraint on that is going to be going out to the global markets and looking as to where there is LNG that is flexible enough or uncontracted that Europe can buy and bring to Europe. Uh, there are countries such as Japan and South Korea that have um, that they use a great deal of LNG and they have a lot of contracts. And in the past, they have been slightly overcontracted. So it's possible we could speak to those countries um, about redirecting some of their contracts to Europe. Uh, and the US is the source of LNG that is least heavily contracted. So if you look at Qatar, which supplies lots of the world's LNG, they're heavily contracted with all their production. But the US is bringing on new liquefaction projects all the time. And that isn't so fixed in its contracting. So there's possibilities with the US. And if the US wish to support Europe in this, then that's where we will be looking to increase our supplies of LNG. And that can take away, that might be able to account for a third of Russian gas that if that's cut off. We're still looking at, we can't get enough LNG off the global market, but we can get a, a fair bit to make okay. a difference. So in, in short, it's it seems very difficult, um, certainly in, unless, uh, certainly if we want to keep the same demand, the sort of gas demand levels that we're used to, in the past, it seems quite difficult. Let's sort of go back to the to, to the building blocks then, and um, and take it one by one. Some people listening may not may not be so familiar with um, with uh, how the European gas market and system works currently. So perhaps you could just take us through where uh, where most of Europe's gas is coming from and uh, how it gets here. Well, we have the North Sea, and in the past, that supplied the UK in particular with a great, you know, most of our gas. Um, and sometimes people have forgotten that that's been in decline for quite a while now, and we import half our gas. Um, so there's there's the the Norwegians have used their portion of the continental shelf slow more slowly so that there's a good supply of gas that comes in from Norway um, and in fact their production is still increasing and it could possibly be pushed up a little bit further. Uh, I've heard some quite interesting talk recently about trying to maximise that North Sea gas. Some of the gas is put in for enhanced oil recovery. So you actually inject gas to get more oil out because oil has historically been a more valuable fuel. Um, however, despite the large rises in oil prices, it's nothing compared to the rise in gas price. So it may be worth stopping that injection for oil recovery and um, producing that gas. So there are one or two things that might mean you could get a bit more out of the North Sea. So that's about, you know, if we're talking in rough divisions, the North Sea gas um, from Norway and the UK might be a third of our gas. Um, and then you're looking at, at the LNG market for another third, maybe a bit less than a quarter. Um, and then there's been a large part uh, coming from Russia. But it's quite specific where that, that Russian gas is going to the eastern countries and to Germany which has become very reliant um, on Russian gas. So that comes by pipeline. There are huge fields in Russia and there are very long pipelines that are aging quite a bit. Uh, and they've also found new reserves where those huge fields in Russia are in decline now. They've gone up into the Arctic and around Yamal, they found uh, lots more gas. And the best way of getting that out, some of it's coming into Europe via pipeline, but one of the best ways of getting that out is by LNG. So Russia is sending some of their gas out via LNG. And a little bit of that has come into Europe um, via LNG as well. So we've got the North Sea. We've got these pipelines from Russia, which have done a lot of the gas. And then more recently, we've been increasing our um, LNG. 
and there's been indigenous production so we've had uh the Netherlands historically have had, have produced quite a lot of gas, but they've had problems with their production because of um, localized earthquakes, because of their particular field, which is being used as a swing field. That's filling and emptying it, and that had caused some some earthquakes. So they've been cutting down their gas production drastically in recent years. And Denmark's also stopped producing gas. So they've gone much greener and said they're not doing oil and gas anymore. Um, so the the indigenous production within Europe is having been quite a lot, has come down quite quickly in recent years. Uh, and then in the south of Europe, the picture is slightly different again because we actually get there are some pipelines from North Africa. So Europe has a good diversity of supply. And whenever there have been security of supply studies across Europe, it's relied they've relied on the fact there's diversity of sources. But the diversity of sources overall looks good. But then individual countries such as Germany have become heavily reliant on um, Russian gas and Hungary and some of those Eastern European countries are, are still very heavily reliant on Russian gas. And it's very understandable because it is cheap. It's it's low, It's nearby the pipelines that exist already and it's cheap. So it's understandable that they've become reliant on it. But I think on reflection, the risk analysis hasn't included possibly all the risks that um, governments should have been considering. Maybe it's enough to say that none of us expected um, Russia to behave like this. Yeah, and then just to um, just to think about that a bit further, we've we've seen some some discussion in the news about Nord Stream One, Nord Stream Two. So Nord Stream One was a is a pipe that that goes directly from Russia to Germany. Nord Stream Two, similarly, it, what's the impact of this uh, Nord Stream Two now not going ahead? Well. Nord Stream 1 is an enormous pipeline in any case. Um, so that really changed the game. So back um, back in 2008 or 9, it slipped my mind which one it was, uh, Russia interrupted the flows across Ukraine. So the thing about Russian gas is it has had to transit um, intermediate countries to get to Europe. And because of the political nature of Russia with these neighbouring countries. It's a highly political thing with the countries it's transiting. So it transits Ukraine, Belarus and Poland, well, it's Belarus and Poland on its way into Germany. Um, and then Ukraine into most of those other Eastern European countries that it's, it's transited Ukraine. So it's always been highly political, the transiting. So when Ukraine started uh, you know, disagreeing way back then, they were disagreeing with Russia about transit charges and wanting to charge Russia more for using its pipelines. Um, that that Russia does not like that, so they they looked for a possibility of of a route into Europe that didn't transit any countries. So this is where Nord Stream 1 was so important because it goes straight from Russia into Germany, the biggest gas market in Europe, um, directly from Russia to Germany. And that meant they didn't have to deal with their transit countries. And in the past, not now, but in the past, they've had arguments with Belarus. Um, and be fair to Poland, Poland have been saying for years, don't trust Russia. They've been trying to diverse away diversify away from Russian gas um, for a long time now. And they've built an LNG terminal, have another one on the way. They've built an expensive uh, pipeline to bring Norwegian gas into Poland. So Poland's been trying to diversify away from Russia. Um, and Lithuania did the same thing. They built an LNG terminal. But this pipeline into Germany has given Russia this direct route. Um, so that's what that's the route they want to use. Um, and but by itself, it wasn't quite enough to replace all the Ukrainian, all the 
capacity. But if you have two of them, then you can actually replace all that capacity across Ukraine. And then it doesn't matter what happens to the pipes across Ukraine. Um, at the moment, with just the one pipe, you still need to send um, between 15 and 30 BCM of gas. So this is out of the whole of the Russian import, say 150 would be normal. Um, 15 to 30 of that has to come via Ukraine in order to meet the demand of those countries in the east. Uh, Europe's worked quite hard to improve capacity flowing from west to east, um, but still but still, to meet its contracts, Gazprom does have to flow some gas via Ukraine. But if you bring in Nord Stream 2, then you then you can forget about that, that they can bring enough gas into Europe, although Europe would have to increase some capacity west to east. So that was really the pressure. The Nord Stream projects, the first one, critical in trying to bypass Ukraine, but not quite big enough. But with two of them, it meant that Russia could flow straight into Europe. So that's the power of those pipelines. Um, and... I mean, it exists. It's been built. It's finished. It's full of gas. If Germany had given it a regulatory approval, it would have started flowing um, last October. And that is exactly the same time as Russia cut down its gas supplies to Europe, reduced them to a minimum, or possibly its prices and people aren't taking the gas. It's arguable exactly what caused it. But at the time, they were expecting to use Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 didn't get approval. And that really sport the plans of bypassing Ukraine. And then thinking more more sort of globally, the the gas market was fairly tight anyway during 2021, as you say, this point about prices um, and uh, and and you know in terms of Russia and Europe, but the global market was already impacted. Yeah, that came first, really. So what had happened on the global market? So during 21. There were a number of things. The the global supply-demand picture was having things thrown at it all the time during 21. Um, There's a massive long list you could come to, starting with a pretty cold winter in January 21 that lasted longer than usual. And gas markets hate late cold winters because if you're still cold in February, March, gas storage is getting empty and then everybody gets a bit jittery, so prices get higher. So it started with that scenario, a sort of cold later winter. And then I think um, there's a fair amount to say about climate change here and extreme weather conditions because going into the summer, there were some really nasty hot spells in um, in Canada and North and, and America. There was that really nasty hot spell and that increased the amount of um, cooling power they needed for cooling, air conditioning. And um, that brought drew in a lot more LNG to that to that part of America. And, so, and then we had a very hot spell in China and Japan, and they needed cooling. Uh, so that was demand for LNG going up because there's a lot of power. A lot of Japan's power is gas-fired. So um, there was, and that was during the summer and some extreme weather. Um, and then it was followed by very nasty cold snaps when the winter was getting quite bad. So there's been a number of, as well as droughts in Brazil, I'll just miss that. So we've got everything. We've got some very hot weather, we've got some very cold weather, and we've got some droughts in Brazil. Um, and they rely on hydroelectric. So they're not producing um, that that hydropower. And their, their backup is LNG. So Brazil has a very sort of temperamental gas demand, depending on whether they've got the hydro there. They bring in LNG. So they were bringing in LNG instead. 
um, in a market that was really tight. So up until September, it was really the global market that was pulling up prices and everyone was getting a bit you know, tense about how high prices were going, especially during the summer when demand in Europe is low and it shouldn't be so high. Um, and then it coincided with this no Nord Stream 2 being permitted come October, which is the start of the gas year, for those of you who don't know. So October is significant because it's the start of the gas year and new projects often start then and it's going into the winter. It's the start of the winter season. Um, and then Russia's behaviour seemed to change or its supplies changed. Whether it Obviously, there's a debate in the first webinar that we did was looked at some of the commentary on what was happening then. Um, but now it seems... Um, I think, you know, if there was pressure brought to try and get that permitted before you invaded Ukraine, that would have been preferable for Russia. That's a bit political for a mere gas consultant, I have to say. We've, we, you mentioned our webinars there. We've done two um, webinars that are, uh, that are available on the website. You can just Google a free energy webinars. I think you'll be able to find them that way. One on the 7th of Feb, uh, which was looking at the, at the gas crisis as it was then. And then uh, just on the uh, on the 8th of March, um, following the invasion of Ukraine, looking at the impacts and uh, and and you know doing drawing on some analysis of how we would replace uh, all the Russian gas and what demand may uh, may change at that at that uh, point. So then the global market was was coming back to the to the point, Lucy. The global market was already tight. It's unclear uh, whether Russian gas flows were reducing because of political reasons or price reasons at that point. Um, but now we're in a situation where the EU is saying it, it, it wants to reduce reliance on Russian gas by two thirds by the end of the year. One one question that comes to mind for me is. Uh, these contracts, as I understand it, with Russia have take or pay provisions. So that means even if you don't take a volume of gas, there's a minimum payment you must make, regardless of how much you take. Uh, and I wonder what happens in the situation where we reduce below those minimum levels, which I think is suggested by this two thirds reduction on reliance on Russian gas. Uh, how? Uh, Russia responds to that. Yeah, I think that's really that is where the problem becomes uh, sticky. Because if it's about if you're cancelling Russian gas contracts because you don't want to be giving Russia the money to fund its activities, then you don't want to be taken to arbitration and have to give them the money anyway. So on contracts, you could probably call force majeure um, on a contract if if governments um, declared those contracts illegal. Now, I don't know whether that could happen EU-wide or whether it would have to be government by government that they declared, you know, we're not going to have any Russian contracts and declared them illegal, and then maybe you could call force majeure. Uh, or if the payment methods for the gas that were sanctioned, so the banks, they've been careful not to sanction um, methods which would stop us paying for our energy. So, but if that was to happen, then that again could be a cause to to call force majeure but at this point you bring in the lawyers i'm i'm not a lawyer so i think there is a there's a sensitive area where europe can't really just say well we only want as much gas as we have to have um but that's breaking the contract that would be a pointless activity if you ended up paying the money anyway 
Um, but possibly, I suppose, if you did it, you know, these contracts spread out across all of European countries. So maybe it'd be a country by country thing. I mean, or maybe we, we don't renew any contracts. So the contracts um, are coming to an end. Uh, the long-term contracts from Russia come to an end throughout the 20s. And into the, I think the longest ones are about 2033. I can't remember the exact date. So early 2030s, some of the contracts will last till then. So you can cancel contracts and not renew them. Um, but the actual act of the existing contracts it is a bit touchy because I can't see it going down very well, taking below the minimum amount, taking just what you have to have in order not to be interrupted. You can't, you know, do both. So I think that is a bit of a that is an area for lawyers and governments. I guess they are they will be consulting lawyers and considering what their options are. But it's not quite as simple as just saying we want to take what we want to take. There are you know there's a lot of other uh, other factors to uh, to take account of. So it's not as simple. There is a bit of Russia's got to send it somewhere. I don't know what the production. I don't really can shut fields off altogether. Um, how easy it is to reduce production or, you know, if you shut them in, is it hard to open them up? So there's a sort of actual operational question of of uh, whether Russia can easily just cut us off, um, what they do with their gas if they don't. I had an interesting comment, you know, everybody's, well, one of the things is you can send it up and send it off by ship, LNG, um, as LNG, but, but apparently Russia doesn't have the technology. They use Western technology to build their liquefaction plant and get the ships. So if if globally we're, they're going to sanction Russia and not allow them access to that or uh, assist them with engineering for more LNG liquefaction or more LNG ships, then that reduces Russia's ability to send it off via LNG. Although I imagine the Chinese could build anything and, and uh, might come to their assistance. Yeah, and then... I suppose the the other option could be that they just flare the gas. I mean, it'd be massive volumes, wouldn't it? It's horrible for the environment. A lot of this um, ends up being horrible for the environment, at least in the short term. Um, I think, you know, if you're burning more coal or lignite, um, even oil in some places because, um, of the, because of having to come off Russian gas, it seems horrible. But there's payback, isn't it? I mean, this is more your thing, Matt, than mine because I'm not um, – or I'm not across the electricity markets, but renewables, the pressure to decarbonize will be greater than ever and get out of gas and all fossil fuels that Russia sells, get out of them altogether. So the, so although in the short term, there might be some nasty burning of um, additional coal, you might find that the pressure to bring renewables forward and funding, and suddenly funding renewables seems like a bargain compared to these horrendous prices of gas. Mm. And it's it's safe to say when we've looked at we've looked at alternatives on the basis of saying well if we were to if we were to face a situation where Russian gas was was not there uh, what would we do? But in actual fact, a lot of the things that we would do are probably things that are happening anyway because of the astronomical price of gas currently in European gas markets. So switching out into other forms of generation already going on. Um, there might be some other measures to do with, uh, you know, nuclear retirements in Germany. Whether whether that gets looked at again, they were going to they're, they're closing their nuclear before the end of the useful life. Um, it, there are other measures in, in addition, but in terms of demand response, demand reduction, of course, already we'd seen companies having a, a lot of trouble with the high prices we had in the past, and now if this is a, a more permanent fixture these very high prices that we've got currently, we could imagine that, that 
you know, those demand measures might be going on. Yeah, I mean, prices, you're right, prices are going to be doing it. Um, it was quite interesting, actually, um, because I, one of the things that's been brought up in conversation has been Fukushima and what the Japanese did when they were very strapped for power. Um, they had a sort of widely advertised reduction of your energy use so everybody was encouraged to switch off lights um, reduce the air conditioning and um, apparently I heard from somebody who lived in Japan that you know the Japanese are very formal and like to dress in a suit for work but because they were turning down their air conditioning to reduce their power demand you know it was they were allowed to wear short sleeve shirts you know it's just the amount of publicity was given to actually energy reducing your energy demand and I think that Europe's got quite a lot they could do there I mean I've seen it advertised people could turn down their heating um, but there's a lot that we could do to reduce uh, reduce demand just on a domestic level mm. and and you know the IA had a 10-point plan out uh, one of the one of the measures they suggest was turning the thermostat down by one degree um, I think that you know we can go we can certainly go further um, obviously not affecting vulnerable uh, people, but um, one degree. If if a lot of thermostats are set at, at say twenty one, twenty two in Europe, not everywhere, but uh, a lot of them, um, then reducing by more than one degree seems to me perfectly possible. And it, it, according to the IEA's figures, has one degree reduction on your thermostat has a ten BCM impact, so it's not negligible. The other thing, of course, is you know calls for people to uh, use oil more efficiently because, of course, there's also you know, Russia is producing oil and um, and selling oil, so reducing oil demand would also be useful. So driving driving more carefully on motorways at lower speeds can have quite a big impact on fuel efficiency within uh, within diesel and gasoline cars. And working from home, I mean, uh, we've all got used to working from home, so um, I drive a lot less because you, you, we don't need to go into the office as much as we did. Yeah. I mean, there is a wider debate there about working from home. Does that mean actually we're heating a lot of homes during the day, whereas before the heating might not have been on so much and would all be in one building together oh, yes, working true. and heating one building? So we have this debate, you know, which depending on, on whether whether people are driving to work, how they're traveling to work, which way is better to organize and what what the impact will be. And actually, we're having that debate, regardless of the current situation, more in terms of uh, carbon emissions and carbon impacts longer term. What is the best way to organize ourselves? So then looking more more sort of, I mean, medium term, I think, with uh, with regard to with regard to the impacts that we could have. I mean, there's, there's obviously uh, more LNG um, could be coming in in the short term, but could we build... You know, the, the, I think we've seen some proposals. Could we build more LNG terminals, and, and where would they get built, Lucy? Well, Germany is it hasn't got an LNG terminal at the moment, and there's one underway, uh, which is the, the closest to completion, stayed, um, uh, and that would help. So Spain, this is just popping around different bits of Europe, but Spain has a lot of LNG terminals and capacity regasification capacity, but it has a very constricted connection between 
Spain and France. So quite a few commentators say that, you know, mention that because you could use the Spanish regas capacity and get it into France. But France also has quite a reasonable number of LNG terminals. So you can get um, LNG into there. So if you want to get that LNG from Spain, the whole way to Germany, there also isn't much capacity going France to Germany. So you'd need more capacity there. So you've got a couple of bottlenecks if you're trying to get it in from the south. And to be honest, it's actually probably better just to build the terminals in Germany, build more floating regasification terminals, which are cheaper, quicker to build um, on the north coast of Germany and Poland, where they've got another one underway or planned um, in Gdansk. So that's so so you get a lot of discussion about those ter- the fact we've got a lot of regas in the south but i think that that's that's slightly a red herring because <clears throat> where you need them is up in the north where the main gas demand is and then it can come straight into the market and you don't have all these problems with the pipeline capacity and the expense and the time it would take so it's so that's what germany's doing i think germany's made some very good decisions very quickly um so they've decided that they want their storage filled they want to fast track these uh, LNG regas terminals. They're going to keep coal burning for a little bit longer. Um, and th- I can't remember what the other thing was. Oh, yes, they've funded, uh, they've put a lot of money into sort of decarbonizing industry. So they're trying to protect their industry by where they can so they don't use so much gas or oil. So um, I think that the terminals into Germany are, are a good idea. There are various problems you have to get uh the right ship that you get these um ships which where which can store and regasify the lng so that as long as you've got the right jetty and you've got a connection to the main gas grid in germany then you can bring in a floating regasification and storage unit and you can just and you can start to regasify the lng but they're the global market, I mean, you have to look to the global market to find one of those. I mean, at gas prices at the moment, I suppose they may they may well be available. Um, so you have to find that and you have to build the jetty, which can take time. Uh, one is already underway and the other two will be fast tracked. So I, I think that's what they're looking at. And those are the main locations. There's a terminal in Holland already and there's one in Belgium. And there's one on the north coast of France as well. And there are plenty around the south. Uh, so I think that's where you need them. Uh, there's one the critical one is going to be Clypeda into Lithuania because that supplies Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And now there's a pipeline up from there into Finland. It's not quite big enough to supply all the demand of those countries. Uh, although Finland has some small scale LNG terminals. Uh, so they're not completely protected, but it's still an actually critical piece of infrastructure for that region. And this extra LNG you, you talk about, it, it 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 could be coming largely. The additional LNG could be coming from the from the US. Is that right? Well, the US is where there's the biggest growth in liquefaction. Um, there are other projects in Africa, uh, Nigeria, Mozambique, but they are held up by Mozambique's been held up by fighting. You know conflict there uh so but the u.s has many many projects um and some of the existing projects can be what they call uh de-bottlenecked sort of made more efficient so they can add more um streams of liquefaction going out ships going out so there's quite a lot that can come out of um, the u.s in fact that's a whole study of its own we have a u.s office and i have discussions with them there's a whole model of its own on the fracking and the oil and gas production because as oil prices go up there's more fracking i mean 
the America is going to want to be producing more of its own oil. Um, so, and there's a lot of shale oil, and with that shale oil comes that associated gas. So, there's a lot of gas to be had, and at the moment, the the actual internal price, if you like, to the US, the Henry Hub price, hasn't been greatly affected by the global market. It's gone up a bit. Um, but as you add a lot of export, that you can imagine as you export a lot more gas through liquefaction, that might affect that Henry Hub price. But um, it doesn't hasn't affected it so far, and they've had most of their terminals running at full capacity. But that's where there are new projects um, that haven't been fully contracted, and there's a bit of there's a bit of um, room in the market for for buying some of that. So the US. Um, both a friendly country and has some production. And I have heard talk of what they called uh, freedom LNG contracts. So if governments supported companies to sign long-term LNG contracts at a reasonable pricing indexation, something that is within reason, that's long-term, because the longer the contract, the better the price you get. But in um, if governments could support companies in signing such long-term contracts, you'd have some some sort of they call it freedom LNG. So you know, from a friendly country that gives you some security, it's basically a sort of hedging or risk management thing to have a long-term contract that perhaps a company wouldn't be able to afford without some government support. It's just that that's a bit mm. out there, a bit out of the box thought. Yeah, and then. What about uh, other parts of the world? Any any increases coming in Australia, in uh, in in Asia? You're aware. Uh, oh, Australia has quite a lot of potential, but it has run wildly over budget on its projects. So it's been an expensive place to get uh, LNG from. I think they have capacity to produce more, so they could they could bring on more. And I'm I'm not familiar with all the with new projects um, in Southeast Asia. There Gas is there's quite a lot of gas production, but they've also got growing gas demand as they attempt to use less coal. So they're so they've got a lot of gas demand locally themselves. So it's a bit hard. There isn't so much gas coming out of that region because it's really there's growing demand there. Although again, there's this thing about the really high prices. So whether how quickly they're going to want to replace coal at these gas prices is is debatable. Not very good for the world and global warming. Yeah, and so coming on to that, I mean, this this idea of in the short term having higher carbon emissions um, really only works with our with our with climate change if you know if we are really committed um, to upping our game on renewable investment. And I, I think one of the one of the interesting points that's been raised is there is a huge amount of renewable investment that that could be happening or happened already but is sometimes held up in approval processes um, which could be now circumvented so it might be we see a, a, a large wave of new projects coming forward at quite a high expectation uh, for that in terms of in terms of this idea of you know higher carbon emissions in the short term uh, for carbon budgets and for climate change then we'd need to have massive increases a real commitment to massive increases in renewable investment. And there is a huge potential for increases in renewable investment. And quite often, uh, those investments are being held up in terms of approval processes. There are pipelines of projects ready to go in uh, in many countries, and especially in Europe. So the more we could see in that regard, the better that would be. One question that comes up quite often from people, uh, given climate change is a, is a 
really existential threat to all humanity is whether building out more LNG facilities, locking in basically fossil fuels longer term as a result of this crisis, whether that's a good idea. Um, and I think the, the, the as I understand it, Lucy, when, when we do our analysis, we certainly foresaw quite even with the net zero targets for Europe, we foresaw Russian gas being, you know, before this happened, being an important part of the mix for some time to come. Is that right? Well, we have um, plans for hydrogen um, and it's they have it, they colour code hydrogen for those of you that don't know. So blue hydrogen is hydrogen that is made with gas where you capture the carbon, you capture most of the carbon. So uh, if you capture and store the carbon, then you've got a low carbon fuel. You can't capture all of it, so it's not a zero carbon fuel. But um, so you make the hydrogen, capture the most of the carbon, and you get blue hydrogen. That was a large part of the plan, partly because we've got so much, so many pipelines across Europe, two towns carrying carrying a gaseous fuel so you could replace that gas and if to start off with you could replace part of the gas with hydrogen and just have a mixture and then eventually you could transfer completely to hydrogen blue hydrogen which is as i say a low carbon fuel and then green hydrogen um, which is generated from renewable energy and so you're not emitting any um you're not emitting any carbon so that whole plan to use blue hydrogen um and make use of the gas network uh, is at risk because that involved that would keep gas demand up. You see, you'd, you'd still need quite a lot of gas, and that suited that suited Russia that that plan to be honest because we'd carry on using their gas for some time to come as long as you could find somewhere to store all the carbon, um, which is quite, some countries aren't keen on that. So there's a bit of debate about the the CCS. So um, yeah, so the, so the gas the prices of gas obviously nobody's going to want to do that. So that threatens one route to uh decarbonization which which looked like a very sort of sensible economic route in that you could still use some of your infrastructure existing infrastructure so that's going to uh be much less attractive now yeah and but but in terms of in terms of using russian gas into the future we still had we still had a chunk of russian gas going out to 2050 is that right yeah, we did. We we expected to use it. I mean, the, it, another thing is the reserves. So when we do our modelling, uh, we're looking at where the reserves are, the cost of production and the size of the reserves, um, both of which are in Russia's favour. And they, they've got huge reserves and the cost of production isn't particularly high. So, yes, as far as sort of modelling it economically, uh, not politically, it looks like a good source of gas for some time to come, whilst we were still continuing to use blue hydrogen. Yeah, and decolonise. I note that the, I mean, a, a, another point here is that the LNG facilities could be built to be hydrogen ready. Um, I don't, I don't know the technical detail of what that means. I think that might be, you might be getting slightly beyond the on the technical detail. For me, it depends how you're transporting. If you were transporting hydrogen around the world from very hot countries where you were able to produce green hydrogen um, and then the transporting of hydrogen is a, another question. It's, it's another question. Difficult. It yeah. might be better as ammonia or whatever, but I saw that the German announcement mentioned that it would be, um, that the, the, the new facilities would be hydrogen ready, whatever that means. And it's one of the, one of the key, key things to bear in mind that even if you're, you know, even if you're replacing a gas boiler in the home, you could have gas boilers that were hydrogen ready uh, installed so that if there is a switch over to hydrogen in future for, for heating, um, you're prepared, you know, and, uh, and you're not locking in 
in, a, in essence, uh, ongoing dependence on fossil fuel. Uh, so I think in all of these decisions, that should be borne in mind, of course, that, um, that just because we are saying we're going to try and replace Russian gas with uh, with LNG doesn't mean we're saying we think that's the long-term solution to uh, to the situation. And it might be that, uh, as Lucy says, green hydrogen in the in the longer term is the is the way to go forward. And it would be green hydrogen produced locally or shipped in uh, in some form that could be replacing uh, the Russian gas that we we were projecting in future we'd be using for some time to come. The, the other question then comes with uh, with local shale production, and of course there was a there were developments in the UK, the discussion in Poland about shale gas in Europe, which uh, generally have have, uh, have have stopped largely due to environmental protest uh, from uh, local uh, local protest in terms of people not wanting that to be uh, to be put in place nearby. We have a similar question, of course, on on local issues and local visual amenity with wind turbines and uh, again in some countries but quite a lot of opposition to wind turbines onshore which is why a lot of wind has gone offshore uh, certainly in the UK and maybe that should be re-looked at again and reconsidered in light of developments. I certainly would hope they'd reconsider um, onshore wind. Shale seems is problematic because of the protesting. i personally think we could do it quite well um, in Europe because we, we would be very environmentally aware. But it, I, I just, it might just be too much to ask. Um, and also, it takes quite a long time to build up. Those volumes they get in America is because they're constantly, constantly fracking. Um, and they're used to a lot of onshore oil wells anyway in these places. So they've seen a lot of onshore activity which is just Europe's just is not ready for that. Although it wouldn't, I'm not saying there'd be enormous amount of room taken up by fracking, but imagine the permitting, uh, trying to get anything done in time to make a difference, and then possibly the stranded assets as decarbonisation takes hold. Yeah, and it, it, it's the timing, I suppose, as well, isn't it? Because if we're hoping to decarbonise our economies, if it takes 10 years to really get a shale gas going in Europe, then is that too late anyway to, you know, could we have been doing something else with our uh, with our effort in that time? I mean, if we'd done it earlier, I might have saved us imports. Um, and there's a lot of energy used turning gas into LNG and then putting it on a ship and then bringing it over and then regasifying it. You can see that it'd be quite attractive to produce your own gas, I mean, environmentally. Um, so there are some arguments in favour of it. But yeah, the timing, um, the timing would be very tricky. Well, in terms of the reshaping of European markets, I think we've covered many of the uh, many of the points um, I wanted to cover. Accelerated deployment of renewables, development of additional LNG capacity, uh, the lower gas and electricity demand um, that we might expect. Also, potentially some stranded assets that uh, stranded assets that we might. Um, that we might see if we electrify more quickly and move away from gas more quickly in general terms. Um, two other areas which which we think about is that you know within the European energy markets, deeper cooperation integration may result from this. That there'd be more sharing of uh, of resources, more sharing of strategy and policy. We could see more control and regulation in some areas coming forward. Uh, for instance. 
Germany and the EU both saying that they want storages to be full, full, you know, to have to have uh, certain limits on certain regulations around. Um, and then finally, this point about windfall profits for some technology types, uh, nuclear, hydro, um, renewables. One asked the question if in, in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases might be uh, room for windfall profits to be able then to protect customers who are impacted uh, from that. And it might be, of course, windfall taxes have been discussed for those who are um, making money from, from uh, gas markets in general. Uh, all of that could could come to bear. So with that, having covered off the uh, the various areas that European energy markets will be reshaped, I'd like to thank you, Lucy, for your time today for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I always like us talking. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, again, as I said at, at the beginning, thoughts and prayers with uh, everyone affected by, by the current situation um, and uh, look forward to, uh, to talking to you again. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Thanks very much for listening. And please subscribe for future episodes of Fueling the Transition.